Brewery. We're always inspired to keep it light, but not lose sight of what makes good beer. Lighthearted is a refreshingly flavorful low-cal IPA with just 110 calories. Lighten up your day the Bell's way. Bellsbeer.com. Please drink responsibly. Thanks so much for joining me today. We are going to dive into the conversation in a moment. First, I wanted to remind you that the show notes and links mentioned on this podcast are on my website at LizaCivicMarketing.com. That's Liza with a Z and Civic with an S. So, okay, let's get started. Good morning, magicians. Hope everyone is well. I've got Rocky Lalvani with me today. And uh, we're going to be talking to him about Profit First and a lot of good information. So, um, Rocky, why don't you start us off telling us a little bit about you, how you came to be doing what you're doing, and about your business. So, what I do now is I help business owners with their financials. I make sure that they are always profitable. I had a big aha moment a couple of years ago. I just assumed that business owners understood the business of business that they knew their financials, that they understood what was going on. And I came to learn that most business owners aren't looking at their financials at all. And I'm like, how do you run a business without doing this? And then I realized they went into business to do what they loved. They didn't go in business to be accountants. And so it made sense why this was such a struggle for them. These are my natural talents. So back when I was in high school, which was a different, you know, decade, generation. I don't know what the right word is. We won't sound. I was probably the same one. Personal computers were just coming to be. And there was a new program called VisiCalc, which was the first electronic spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. And I was teaching accountants while I was in high school how to go from paper ledger to these electronic spreadsheets. Like my life is run on spreadsheets. That's the way we do everything, whether it's the grocery list or Thanksgiving dinner or the business. Like everything's got a spreadsheet. And it just makes life 10x easier. When I look at that, I see numbers. Numbers tell me stories. Stories help me to help people make wiser decisions. I finally realized I had a skill set that had value. So then I started my business, and that's what I do. Of course, I had to market myself and figure out that whole part. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that's the part where numbers tell me a story. As as I often say with my, my friends and my clients, I'm not a math person. Uh, math is math and I are not friends. However, I love the end result of a report. Those numbers are so exciting to me because it's exactly what you just said. You, you hit the nail on the head. They tell you a story. They tell you where to go next. They tell you what you're doing right and wrong. And I love that about reports. Hate math, love reports, because that's what tells you whether it's your profit or your marketing. Um, and, you know, a lot of business owners, just as you said, don't want to focus on that. They would like to outsource that at some point or have someone else do it. But you have to know, one, so you're not getting cheated by anybody. And two, so that you're making the right business decisions. And business owners, as you said, are passionate. Um, so I find that very true. So for your side, what we actually do is we look at number of leads. What's the conversion rate? How many new customers? 
how many customers did we originally have? So how many of the customers we had do we keep? And then we know our total customer base. How often do they buy? And that gives us the total number of transactions. And then we look at, well, what's an average transaction value? And that tells us our revenue, right? And, and it, what, it's yeah, and, and a bunch of people just zoned out when you when you got to transaction, right? A bunch of people just like went, oh, oh god, okay. So what what you're saying is so true because that first half is what I try to tell people: impressions are not customers visitors are not customers until they convert. And when you talk about convert, if people who are listening don't know, that means they actually gave you their name and email. That means they actually bought something. They've converted to being a lead or converted to being a customer. And that is, as as Rocky is saying, is where you get your profit. And so the first part is me and the second part is Rocky. So Knowing that report, you got to look at your reports, you got to look at your marketing, and I know it's overwhelming, and a good marketing person will put them in layman's terms for you, but this is so important, so important. I'm glad you brought this up. So tell us a little bit about how you get people there when they just zone out the minute you get to transaction. So we don't, I don't use words that tell what I do. I talk about their problems. Mm-hmm. And I talk about how I solve their problems. So you said people zone out. It's worse than zone out. And I know, so you're a creative, right? Is that, would that be appropriate? I'm a creative as marketing. And as I often say, my not so secret identity is also immature artists. So yeah, Yeah. usually artists, it's like herding cats with these things. I have a slightly more business mind. That's fine. And so I always say creatives and and money are like oil and water. They just Mm. don't go together. Um, so I talk in those words to say, that's the problem that I solve. I, I help creatives or people who are like that figure out their financials in a way that they can understand. Because most creatives, if you say, hey, let's go look at your financials, they'll be like, can I go cry and curl up in a ball? Right? See, you're laughing because you know it's true. <laughs> it's true. It's funny because it's true. And it was what I used to do all the time. And it's still a struggle for me. But I do it. I look at it because if you don't, oh, what a pile of mess you get if you don't look at that. And so what I do is I offload that for people and I will look at it and I will tell you what's going on. And then I'll ask you questions so that you can make wiser decisions without ever having to look at numbers. And everyone's that, gonna... there's the magic I promised you. You never <laughs> have to look at numbers. I'm just kidding. Yeah, it's true. Well, you see the book back there accounting for the number phobic. It's it. We talk in your language. We oh my gosh, send me a copy of that. Okay, <laughs> number phobic. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's very important. And you know, when people talk about Google Ads and Google Analytics, because I'm Google Analytics certified, Google Analytics certified, and that's a lot. That's a lot of numbers. It's so different than when you talked about starting with PhysiCalc. I started with Google Analytics being one page. Mm. That was it. You know. And the biggest thing I had to worry about was that we had something like 3,500 keywords that I was trying to track every day, but completely different now. And that's why marketing needs to also talk to accountants and look at numbers because it's important. And marketing return on investment is so hard to track and often ends up in the sales department instead of the marketing department. So you need to know your reports. You need to know what's working. So true. So true. So tell me a little bit about what what you do to um, 
educate people uh, on this as far as, you know, okay, I know you don't want to look at the numbers. I know you're curled up in a ball. So how do you get them out of that fetal position? So I, I don't talk in those, those, I, I talk in a language that they understand. And I also created my marketing system in a way that's enjoyable for me. So, it, you know, we have this joke amongst podcasters. Why'd you start a podcast? Because I can't write. Right. So <laughs> if, you, what I think, yes. if you want me to write blog posts and create content and create long form articles, nothing is going to get done. But if you want me to get behind a microphone and just teach and talk and share, I'm going to create amazing amounts of content. So number one, I learned, okay, this is the way I work. So I'm going to create content in a way that's comfortable for me, that I enjoy doing it. And basically what I've done is I've used my podcast to teach people, which means I'm not push marketing. I'm not saying here's an email, read, read, read. I'm saying here's some valuable information. If you enjoy it, listen to the next episode. Go, go check out my information. And generally what will happen is people will listen to me for six, nine, 12 months. And then one day they show up on my calendar and they're ready to do business because they know, like, and trust me. They feel like I'm their friend because I've been in their ears forever. I have no idea who they are though, which is kind of scary. They're like, we know all about you and your family and the this and the that and your little quirks. And I'm like, who are you? <laughs> but it works. Yes, it does. And it's, when you're constantly in their ear, it's like being an actor in a show where they're in their living room. People think they feel like they know you. And mm -hmm. I like that. That means that something is working. Um, I always joke very similar because I can write. I write blog posts and long form content and copy all week. So asking me to write another blog post about me, I would rather talk. <laughs> Let me just Rain dump on you in the podcast, dude. It's fine. So that's very similar. And I think you're right that people don't need to blog if they can podcast. It's a lot easier to, to do. And everyone should be starting a podcast for your company. Hate to break it to you guys. So tell me a little bit about how you came to, um, you know, so you were doing this at, I mean, were you an accountant? What were you doing before? Exactly. 180 degrees. I was actually in sales in okay. the pharma industry. So I was the only sales rep who could actually look at the reports and tell you why you weren't hitting goal, which customer was causing the problem and where they were off and why that was occurring. And ah. so I knew like I would always go to the reports and read them and say, okay, this is what's going on. The problem is the reports they would send us like people would be like, well, I did this and the reports say that, but my commission check says this. Well, because the reports aren't tied to your commission check. So I would actually take the reports, convert them, and make it understandable for the sales rep to say, if I do this over here, then my commission check will go up. And that's what salespeople want to hear. My commission check will go up. And then they'll say, wait, what did you just say before that? Absolutely. Yes. And they don't look at their numbers either. <laughs> He's the uh, VP of Society and he often interrupts our podcast. So hard to do for him, but uh, he's checking out the backyard right now. Okay, so um, maybe we'll get a maybe we'll get an appearance by the Corgi too, because once Kuma starts barking, Duke Skywalker has to help. All right, so um, as I always tell people, they're in my branding because I don't really have a choice. They just come in and show up. So 
on your website, you talk about how profit is often looked at as a leftover, and you want them to look at it as something you start with and then go to expenses. So tell us a little bit about how you how you do that. So, in, and this is all based on the book Profit First by Mike Michalowicz. Mike was a serial entrepreneur, made a lot of money, sold his business, thought he was the smartest man in the world. And a couple of years later, they're coming to take the car and the keys to the house. And he's like, wow, I really screwed up. Um, he said, we've got to have a better way. And the problem is the accountants have formulas that are based on accounting and they're based on tax returns. So the government says, and the accounting says, sales minus expenses equals profit, and we're going to tax your profit. But where does that leave profit? It's a leftover. It's something that most business owners don't find out until tax time when they sit down with their accountant and they go, congratulations, you were profitable, and here's how much you owe. And most people go, where is that money? And how am I supposed to pay that tax bill, right? There's got to be a better way. And so what we basically do is we change the equation from sales minus expenses equals profit to sales minus profit equals expenses. You went into business to make a profit and to be a profitable business. You should take your profit first. You should pay yourself first. And what this is, is basically a cash flow system. It's designed around the envelope system. So you may have heard of the envelope system from the old days, or maybe Dave Ramsey or one of the things. You got your money, and then you had all these envelopes, and each envelope had a purpose, rent, groceries, you know, utilities, and you put the money in that envelope. And when you ran out of that envelope, you stopped spending until more money came in. So it kind of constrained you. And that's basically what we do here. We, the money comes into your account. We set aside your profit. We set aside your owner's pay because most owners don't pay themselves until last, which is wrong. If you're not financially strong, you're going to freak out and freak out all your employees. So you've got to pay yourself first. And then we put money aside for taxes. So when the accountant says you have a tax bill, you go, oh, I hate taxes. By the way, there's enough in my account to stroke a check. So life goes on. And then you have what's left for your operating expenses. And you truly don't overspend then because you know what's in there. Most business owners look at their bank balance. They don't look at their financial reports. This system leverages that strength. You look at your operating expense account and go, I don't have money. I can't spend. And so it's all based on Parkinson's law. Parkinson's law says we will use up all the resources in our business, whether it's time and money. So somebody comes to you and says, I want to start a marketing program. Your question is, well, what's your budget? And how long till you need this result delivered? They tell you, well, my budget's 100,000 and I want to start in three months. I guarantee you, you will spend 100,000 and it will start in three months. If you come to someone and say, hey, my budget's 10 grand and I need something out next week, they will find a way to do it for 10 grand and be out next week. So the second part of this rule is the 80-20 rule, which everyone knows. 20% of your results, 20% of what you do produces 80% of your results, which means 40% of what you do produces 96% of your results, which means 60% of what you do is basically worthless. So let's stop wasting our time and money on worthless, putting out fires and running around like chickens with our heads cut off. And let's focus on what's important 
and let's use the least amount of time and effort to get it done. So I'll tell my clients, hey, can we lower your sales? And they look at me like I'm nuts. I'm like, no, no, no. Understand my goal is that you work half as much and you make twice as much. Which is the magic formula. Which is the magic formula. So let's say you're a business owner and this year you made a profit of $100,000. The standard answer is, okay, I had a million dollars in revenue. I made $100,000. I want to make $200,000 next year. So now I need $2 million in revenue. Oh my God, how am I going to get $2 million in revenue? Well, we got a market. We got to sell. We got to do this. It goes, stop. What if we instead just said, hey, you got a million dollars in revenue. You got $100,000 in profit. Let's just raise prices 10% and see what happens. All of a sudden, your profit went from 100,000 to 200,000 and you didn't work any harder. Then I say, hey, what if we could cut costs by 10 or 11%? Because we're all wasting money on stuff that we got all these softwares we don't even know we're using. We're paying for licenses for stuff that nobody does. Or we oh, stop. Boy, isn't that the truth? Yeah. Isn't that the truth? Right? <laughs> isn't that the truth? Yeah. All you got to do is go through all your bills, cut your spending by 10, 11%. And what did we just do? We took our million dollar business from 100,000 to 300,000 and we didn't work any harder. That is the magic formula. You and just it's actually a realistic one. Yeah, it's, it's a, a realistic one. It's a realistic formula because most business owners are afraid to raise prices. All you got to do is say, hey, we are providing all this value. Look at the return we did with your marketing. We think that's worth another 10%. And if you're doing it right, business owners are, well, it's actually worth 20% more. So I'm happy going to pay you 10%. <laughs> and <laughs> if you just, if you pay attention to where your money is flowing and just stop wasting it, you'll be able to do that. And that, that's essentially what I help people do. And you can do it yourself. You don't need me. No, we don't need you, but we'd like to, you know. Have you there to remind us anyway, right? I can, because that's important because we forget, we get off that path of, you know, we, we get all gung-ho and say, we're going to go look for everything. But business, as business owners, that seems like such a time suck. That seems like something we don't want to put a lot of time into because we are all, all are already, as you said, in panic mode if we're not doing that. So if we're constantly in panic mode and we're constantly putting out fires, and it's something I've seen in small businesses I've worked in, if you're reactive, not proactive, it's very hard to shift to proactive because you're already trying to fix the problems and saying, well, I'm going to stop for a little while and shift. It's just something you can't even imagine doing. And what you're saying is, is as simple as how do you lose weight, eat less, work out more. What? We have the magic formula. We, we believe eat more and lose weight. Is there ice cream involved? Because I'm on board then. Oh, yes. Ice cream. Of course you can eat ice cream and lose weight. You just have to know how to sequence everything. So it's like baking a cake, right? There's a recipe for baking a cake. What if I took all the ingredients for baking a cake and I did them out of order? What would you end up with? Like, let's say I took the... The, the egg and I cracked it and I put it in there and then I covered it with frosting and then I baked it. And then I took it out and threw some flour and water in there. That wouldn't be a good cake. You have Absolutely not. everything right, all the perfect ingredients, but you screwed up the order. It's the same thing in business. You've got to get the order right and you will have success. But too often we, we try to take shortcuts or we don't follow the process. And so 
I believe you can eat ice cream and bacon and lose weight. I have. I, I like that. I like that. And I'm going to just tell everyone that when I buy more ice cream today. It is it is Independence Day weekend as we record this. So there will be ice cream, just so we all know. Um, at least here, at least for me. So uh, it's raining, so there'll be no fireworks. So we're going to go with sprinkles instead. What do you say? So we have... Um, we have the order. We're going to change our order. We're going to stop being in panic. We're going to look at our reports. That's a lot. Again, you've got people going back into the fetal position saying, you just told me to make a lot of changes that seem very uncomfortable. And I think I'm just going to go back into the corner under my desk now and stop listening to you. So, you know, let's reiterate how much easier your life will be if you make these changes. And if you, if you do them in baby steps, or if you do them all at once, either way, you're making that change. So what do you suggest? I'm going to give you the smallest, easiest baby step. Okay. I want you to go open up one bank account. And every month I want to take 1% of your sales and put it in that bank account. That's it. Don't look at your financial reports. Don't look at anything. Right. Don't talk to your accountant. Don't talk to your bookkeeper. Just open up one bank account and every month put 1% of your sales in it. And after three months, look at it and see how much money you have. And then if everything is going well, double it, put 2% in that account and just keep going about life. And you will be shocked at how over time you will start to build wealth and you'll start to go, hmm, I'm starting to build some money here. Maybe I should take that next step and dig a little bit deeper. So that's all easy first step. And when you say that, when you think about a very low interest rate on a savings account or any kind of bank account these days, putting aside just 2% of your profits already makes you more money. Just moving it over that you didn't see before if you were doing that, that spend everything that you have. Mm -hmm. Everyone does. Putting it first. Yeah. It's paying yourself first. It's what they tell you when they teach you how to budget and savings, pay yourself first. And business owners, you're right, do not do that. I've been advised everything from give yourself just enough so that you feel like you're making something, you know, so that you can go buy one thing a month or invest it all back and just work a second job, which, you know, uh, is a bad idea all around. And um, the third is, well, just write yourself a, a you know, a, a, what do they call it? The, uh, the, the, there's a certain check and I forgot, it's gone right out of my head now. So you can tell me where you just write yourself a check as you need it out of your bank account and so out of your uh, company budget and as an owner, you know, and um, none of those are what you're saying. None of those are what you're saying to do. You're saying pay yourself first, pay your business first and decide where your profits are going to be before you go to your expenses. Exactly. Yeah. So I love this. How do you help people do it directly? Because I think after this, they are going to want to talk to you because this is revolutionary. Revolutionary, I tell you. We don't think this way as business owners. So basically, I do everything that we just talked about. And I sit down with you and ask you questions about your business and how things are going. And I just help you make those little changes. And I'm going to tell you, this is not overnight success. Don't think you're going to come to me and tomorrow life is going to be better. We tell people, it you know, it took you a long time to get here. It's probably going to take you two to three years to get from where you are to where you truly want to be. This is a journey and it takes time. We can't change all these levers overnight. 
right? They're little teeny baby steps. And we just keep making baby steps into the right direction. And I hold your hand so that it's easy. And whenever you've got stuff that you want to cry over, you just hand it to me and I go, okay, things are good. Things are bad. Here's what you need to do to change. Here's your action steps for the month. Can you handle those two, three tasks? Yes. Have a nice day. Go do it. We work on your business instead of in your business. Okay. So it's almost like you're a a financial business coach. You're just, you're dealing with the financial systems and, and helping them through it. Yeah. So I call myself the chief profitability officer. My job is to make you profitable. Somebody in your company should. You should. Now, if you added two more C words at the beginning, I could call you C3PO and that would be fun. (laughs) But that's just because I'm a geek. So I think that is a wonderful way to look at it because it's not scary. It's not scary anymore. And it sounds like you hold somebody's hand and then they're like, okay, fly, be free, little bird. You understand now how to handle your money and not be afraid of it, not be worried and panicked about it. And if you look, if you think about it, your accountant doesn't do this because your accountant's all about compliance, mm-hmm. right? They're not they sitting be, right. there. That's wonderful. But who's sitting there saying to you, hey, did you know if you make these couple of changes, you can increase your profit margin by 12% or you can make more money? And that's not what they do, unfortunately. They're more about doing your tax return. And your bookkeeper is just making sure everything's in the right place so that the accountant doesn't yell at you. <laughs> but who's helping you grow and, and be profitable? I love that. That is fantastic. You were you were the financial therapist, and I think a lot of us need that. A lot of us were raised not to talk about money, not to think about money, not to worry about money. Um, a lot of different wrong ways of thinking about money. Uh, so this is wonderful, wonderful information. I have really enjoyed this conversation. Anything you want to leave us with? You want to tell us how to find you? So the first thing I want to leave you with is if you enjoyed this podcast, would you please go rate it for Lisa and and give her some love? Uh, It's a lonely world in podcasting. We don't hear from you. So it will help the show get out and help more people. So number one, if you can do that. Um, As for me, if you'd like to find me, my my main website is profitcomesfirst.com. If you go to profitcomesfirst.com, if you want to, you want to check out the book before you buy it, I'll give you two free chapters along with some tools. If you prefer to listen like you're listening now, check out my podcast, Profit Answer Man. You can find the links there. And if you want to chat with me, get on my calendar. I just, I help people and there's no pressure in sales. I don't, I don't believe in competition. I, you'll, you know, if you listen to the podcast, you'll hear all my competitors on the show. I bring them on because whoever is the right person to help you is the one I want to find for you. That is exactly my, my outlook. So that's, that's great. And thank you. Thank you for asking them to comment and rate the podcast because we do need that people listen in the car and then that's it. Go back and rate me for goodness sakes, uh, preferably positively. And, uh, Let's uh, let's definitely talk again, because I think there's a lot more to unpack here. There's a lot more topics and I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And uh, go listen to uh, his podcast and go check out profitcomesfirst.com and, and stop being afraid of your money. Wow. Another fantastic conversation done. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Don't forget that all the links mentioned will be in the show notes at LizaCivicMarketing.com. And while you're there, if you're a business owner whose marketing is on life support, 
check out the Your Virtual Marketing Department offer and take the Marketing Health Report quiz for free. For less than the cost of a full-time hire, we can take your marketing from frustrating to lead generating with an entire marketing team. So check that out and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to Marketing Myths and Magic, part of the Xvadio Podcast Network. You can find us at xvadio.com slash podcasts, as well as the Apple Podcasts app, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and wherever you find podcasts. With MailChimp, you get a whole lot more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. That means you can connect your data to make more informed, smarter decisions. And you get powerful automation tools like our customer journey builder to ensure you never miss an opportunity to turn shoppers into loyal customers. So if you're ready to integrate your marketing and boost sales, get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. With MailChimp, you get more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. With things like data-driven recommendations and powerful automation tools. Get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, senior analysts Emily Flippin and Jason Moser. Good to see you both. Hey, hey. hey Chris. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We'll take stock of the streaming entertainment landscape. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with big tech under the microscope. This week, the attorneys general from 36 states and the District of Columbia filed an antitrust lawsuit targeting Google's App Store. The suit argues that Google maintains a monopoly for distributing apps in the Android operating system. Emily? How worried should Alphabet shareholders be about this lawsuit? Well, it'll be interesting to see where this lawsuit goes, because lawsuits like this in recent history haven't amounted to much. However, I think it's fair to say there is mounting pressure, both within the U.S. government, but also across the world, the EU in particular, against big monopolistic companies, Alphabet being one of them. And in addition to the claims that you mentioned, Chris, they actually include these kind of crazy assertions that Google bought off developers to dissuade them from distributing apps outside of Google's own store, that they're collecting extravagant commissions and even paying Samsung not to develop a competing app store. So if any of those come uh, to, to light, especially paying off a competitor like Samsung, Alphabet could certainly be in trouble. 
And what's even more interesting and what gave me probably the biggest chuckle reading about this story was that Google's only real defense was to really just point their finger at Apple and say, well, have you seen what they're doing? (laughs) Why are you mad at us? It's really not the most compelling argument. Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't blame them for reminding regulators and attorneys general that Apple exists with its own app store, but that doesn't seem like the greatest defense. Well, it's not, again, a compelling argument, but it does highlight the duopoly that exists in mobile operating systems today. If I was a shareholder in Alphabet, and I am somebody who owns an index fund, so I am effectively a shareholder in Alphabet, I wouldn't be sweating too much. This is a big business. If they have to change their policies, if they have to spin off different divisions long-term, I'm not sure it makes a big difference, especially for index fund holders. Wells Fargo announced it is shutting down personal lines of credit, which is one of the bank's most popular consumer lending products. The credit lines had been pitched as a way for customers to consolidate higher-interest credit card debt or pay for home renovations. Jason, Wells Fargo is not saying how many customers this move will affect, but it's clear already that some of them are not happy about this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the biggest risk here. Honestly, it's it's the headline and the messaging risk, and and it is it is something they need to message this the right way. And, and unfortunately, it feels like they're already failing. And given where Wells Fargo has been over the past several years, that just is really. Not that's not good, Chris. Um, but but I mean, to to your point, I mean, this is part of the consumer banking and lending division. Now, if you look at all of the different facets of Wells Fargo's business, I mean, the personal lending represented five hundred ninety-four million dollars in revenue in two thousand and twenty. That was actually down from six hundred fifty-two million dollars in two thousand and nineteen. Uh, and this is all in the context of a company that generated. A little bit more than fifty-eight billion dollars in revenue in 2020. So, so the bottom line is this really isn't a big part of the business, right? It's just it's like one percent of the business, uh, but it is something where they feel like perhaps they can get their customers into a better product while maybe eliminating some of the excess risk that Wells Fargo uh, continues to take on as as they try to sort of reshape this business and and get their lending portfolio uh, back in order here. It it does feel like regulators are going to give them a little little bit more room to work with the business, and that's good. Uh, But I think the biggest biggest risk here, again, is headline risk, and and, and ultimately, it is is the this credit score uh, problem, and, and you know they they talk about the fact that customers may witness uh, you know a, a ding to their credit score because of this. And, and if you're a customer, right? If you, if you're a customer of Wells Fargo and you're, and you're getting this message and they're saying, hey, through no fault of your own, you may your credit score may be hurt through this uh, through this move. I mean, as as a customer, that really seems very unfair. It, it seems uh, like it, it could it could be done a little bit differently. So I think. They may need to backtrack and figure out exactly how to communicate this and figure out a way to get around this credit score thing. Because certainly, if I were an account holder and I'm not, I would be very frustrated with that because we're taught to protect our credit scores as one of the most valuable assets when we become adults. They open up a lot of windows of opportunity. So, for me, I understand the move, but they really need to focus on messaging this the right way. Last week, Didi, the Chinese ride-hailing app, went public. And this week, shares of Didi fell more than 25% after the Chinese government announced that new users would not be able to download the app while the government conducts a cybersecurity review of Didi. 
Emily, how should investors feel about this? Because part of me looks at this story and thinks, you know what? That's kind of the cost of doing business in China. It's actually multifaceted. There's an aspect of this that it, you're exactly right on, Chris. Right? It's the cost of doing business in China if you're a Chinese company raising money abroad. There's always been a power struggle between the Chinese government and its increasingly important and independent and powerful businesses and entrepreneurs. That doesn't just apply to Didi. We, we've seen that happen with numerous businesses, not only over the course of the last year, but looking back five years when I. One comes to mind is Ant's failed IPO. Um, Jack Mon, even recently, a merger blocking between two live streaming platforms. But in Didi's case, though, and part of the reason why I think Didi was damaged so much by the news is that it's actually a bit more complicated than just this power struggle. Didi is a transportation and data business company at heart, and the Chinese government has always outlined transportation as critical public infrastructure. And before Didi's IPO, the government actually suggested that they delay the public offering because they were afraid that listing in the United States would give U.S. regulators and thus the U.S. government access to sensitive information that the business has on Chinese citizens. And it's only after Didi didn't take that advice, listed themselves on the U.S. markets, that the government decided to conduct this security review. So it's important to think about that both with all of the Chinese holdings that listeners may have, but also with Didi in particular and the critical infrastructure that the Chinese government sees in some of these businesses. Also, seems like a lesson for other Chinese companies that are thinking about going public over the next few years. That maybe when the government comes knocking on your door and says eh, you might want to delay your IPO, maybe take that advice. <laughs> no kidding. You don't want to be in a power struggle with the Chinese government. That's for sure. Christmas came early for shareholders of Stamps.com. On Friday, private equity firm Toma Bravo announced it is buying Stamps.com for about six billion dollars in cash. The buyout price is three hundred thirty dollars a share, Jason, which is nearly seventy percent higher than where Stamps.com closed the day before. Was anyone else? I mean, I'm happy for the shareholders of Stamps.com, <laughs> but was anyone else bidding against this private equity firm? That is a massive, massive premium, and 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 it, it is worth noting there is a forty day go shop period that would expire uh, a little, little bit past the middle of August. Uh, I, I have a hard time believing they're going to find a better offer than this, and you know we we rarely mention. Um, Companies like FedEx and UPS in the same conversation as Stamps.com, but I mean, ultimately, that is the market opportunity this business is a part of, and they they're not even generating a you know billion dollars in revenue annually. So I mean, there is plenty of room for this company to grow. Now, now with that said, I mean, it has been a very bumpy ride. I'd imagine that shareholders of Stamps.com, and I'm not one, but I'd imagine they are feeling like this is a big win. But if you remember, just go back to 2019 uh, when we were talking about that breakup with the USPS, right? I mean, that that postal service relationship at the time it made perfect sense. But management felt that, hey, listen, if we're going to grow, if we're going to become something bigger, we've got to expand, uh, you know, our network here, so to speak. And so that news, remember that headline? I mean, the shares fell like more than 50 percent that one day, just based on that headline. But it was kind of like ripping off that Band-Aid, right? They knew they had to take that short-term hit in order to give this business a chance uh, in the long run. And that, that's kind of what we were discussing at the time when, when that move was made. And I think this acquisition, this is a tacit statement 
on the part of Tama Bravo that they know they can unlock value and make this an even better business. This is right in their wheelhouse. They have a very strong reputation in acquiring these types of businesses. Remember, they they acquired Ellie Mae, thanks a lot, uh, RealPage, <laughs> Click, Instructure. I mean, a lot of these software businesses that are playing uh, all these different vital roles in our in our economy today. I mean, this this is going to be another one. I think um, they've grown revenue at twenty six percent annualized over the last five years. So there have been plenty of criticisms for Stamps. Along the way, but but all in all, it's been a pretty good business, and shareholders have done okay. And I'll tell you, if you if you saw that drop back in 2019 when when that that postal service agreement was severed, if you saw that as an opportunity, well, good for you because shares have just taken off ever since then. I mean, it's been almost a Wayfair like story in that regard. Um, so I, I think this is probably all's well that ends well here, but it's certainly been a fun one to follow along the way. If your waistline changed at all during the pandemic, you are not alone. And one apparel company has the proof. Details right after the break, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Emily Flippin and Jason Moser. Shares of Levi Strauss up on Friday after second quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. The denim company also raised guidance for the full fiscal year. Levi Strauss CEO Chip Berg said the increased demand was due in part to the fact that more than one third of consumers have different waistlines than they had before the pandemic. (laughs) Although, Emily, Berg stressed that some waistlines have gotten smaller while others have gotten larger. Well, I'm not one of those collection of people for which mine has gotten smaller, and I'm not quite <laughs> ready to be putting jeans back on again. But it seems like a lot of people out there are. In addition to those 35% of consumers who have changed, let's say, their waist size over the last year, they're also selling totally different styles of jeans. And as a millennial myself, who is in fact married to her skinny jeans, I was very surprised to find that over 50% of their jean sales were actually baggier jean styles. So these are loose, wide leg, or flare jeans. So there's been a change in style over the past year, two year, three years as well. That's now showing up in Levi's results. But even with this, revenue is still three percent lower than it was over the same time in 2019. So they still haven't quite picked up the momentum they had heading into the pandemic. But the good news is, is that 92 percent of their retail stores are now back opened across the world, and they're able to sell higher margin, full priced items in those stores more than they are online. Do you get the sense that they are doing an effective job of balancing something that every retailer struggles with, which is the in-store experience versus building up that digital sales? What's interesting is they've actually focused more, I'd say, on their wholesale business in particular, partnering with the third parties like Nordstrom's that don't discount as much, but they have made a concerted effort on their digital sales. Their app had a 20% increase in downloads over the last year, and they're actually doing stuff like having a TikTok channel and taking PayPal and Venmo in stores. So they're, they're trying to reach that younger demographic. Philip Morris announced it's buying Vectora Group for $1.2 billion in cash, And what makes the acquisition noteworthy is the fact that Vectora Group is a pharmaceutical company specializing in inhaled medicines, and Philip Morris specializes in inhaling tobacco smoke. Jason, I I think I understand what Philip Morris is trying to do in terms of broadening its product offerings, and certainly they've got the cash, but you tell me, is this a move they can pull off? 
I just find this utterly fascinating from so many different angles. I mean, it, it feels like it would be something straight out of The Simpsons, right? A commercial on The Simpsons. Philip Morris, we're a healthcare company. But I mean, like, that is really the angle they're taking here, right? I mean, you've got Philip Morris, this company that, that is, is just basically focused on selling its Marlboro brand cigarettes and the other the other cigarettes it has in its portfolio. I mean, they're selling these brands uh, internationally, right? I mean, they're, they're the ones that are selling internationally, and they're capitalizing on really what is an interesting situation in Asia-Pacific, where cigarette use is still growing versus the rest of the world where it's declining. I mean, it is, it is pretty interesting to see volumes globally. It's still it's a very steady trend downward, but retail value continues to tread water, and that's just thanks to pricing. I think that's kind of like that that whole movie theater, uh, you know, the box office tickets thing we've seen. Right? They're selling fewer tickets, but they're able to to maintain a little bit on the pricing that maintains the value of the market. But you can only maintain that for so long, and and there's clearly. An overall trend towards uh, decline, right, in in tobacco use. I mean, I think that's that much is clear. Uh, and so you see a company with Philip Morris focusing on what it knows best, right, inhaling things. But now just maybe working on inhaling things that are perhaps good for you as opposed to bad for you. Um, I mean, the stock itself has been it's been stuck in a rut for obvious reasons. I mean, shares are up just twenty five percent over the last five years, getting pounced by the market. But but again, I mean, it, they had earlier this year they had had stated plans in order to, to generate more than half of its revenue from smokeless products by 2025. Uh, now that half of its revenue that's up from 24 percent in 2020. So they really are making a concerted effort to sort of pivot this business right and, and rely less and less on tobacco and more and more on things like smokeless. And now uh, what we're seeing inhaled. Uh, Medicines, I I feel like there's something there now. Whether they can pull this off, I don't know. It it really does seem like it's it's difficult to do both though, and I think that's going to be where they have to make a decision at some point, right? I mean, it, it's kind of like saying we're Exxon Mobil, we develop electric vehicles, right? I mean, you're going to have to make a decision one way or another, and and then really make the effort towards going full throttle in that direction. And so maybe this is a clue, maybe this is one sign that this is where they'll they'll be going. I, I certainly don't begrudge them. I mean, it, it's an easy acquisition for the company to make, and, and I you know I listen. I mean, I mean, healthcare is a large and growing market opportunity, uh, whereas Philip Morris is right right now. They're kind of stuck in, in a, a market opportunity in sort of a long term secular decline. Yeah, Emily. I mean, just going beyond Philip Morris. I mean, we talk all the time about companies that are looking for different optionalities, but and certainly they're big enough to at least attempt this. But I don't know. What do you think when you look at this story? Well, I, I think it's an interesting move because I also follow the cannabis space. And there's always been this big question about the move for tobacco companies in particular to move from what's perceived, to, to your point, Jason, as an industry that's in secular decline to something that they also could possibly have experience in, inhaled products, let's say, and to something that's growing. And when you look at what Senate Majority Leader Schumer has put forward or is attempting to put forward in the Senate in terms of federal movement on the front of legalization, they're actually taking actions to keep big alcohol and tobacco companies out of the industry, potentially. So, I think it's a, it's a move that is probably forward-looking, admittedly a little confusing. This fall, college students on 250 campuses across America will have something new to look forward to. Robots that deliver food. 
Grubhub is teaming up with Yandex, the Russian startup focused on self-driving technology. Yandex will operate the robots. Grubhub will be the platform for the transactions. And Jason, I cannot wait for the videos because <laughs> I just have to believe those are coming this fall. College oh. students taking videos of these robots, and it's entirely possible some of them might be messing with the robots a little bit. Well, see that to, to your point there. That that's kind of where my mind went immediately when I read this because I, I mean, I I know you remember your college days. I certainly remember mine, Emily. I mean, you gotta you gotta figure that these things are gonna get messed with to the nth degree, right? I mean, it would be just too much fun not to do that. And so, I mean, this is probably gonna be a massive viral success for TikTok, but it really does uh, it does make sense, right? The, these delivery these delivery companies, but the economics really are gonna make more sense as they get towards automated delivery. Slow-moving lunchboxes with hot food inside? I'm sold. (laughs) All right, Emily, Jason, we'll see you later in the show. Up next, we'll get the latest on Netflix, Disney+, and the rest of the streaming video landscape from our man Tim Byers. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Tim Byers is a senior analyst covering media, entertainment, and a host of other industries for The Motley Fool. He joins me now from Colorado. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, man. Good to see you. Good to see you. Let's start with the streaming landscape, because it certainly has been one of the biggest stories of of the pandemic. And it sort of feels like, collectively, the streaming landscape is taking a breath. So, I figured it was a good chance to sort of step back and see where we are. And where we are is where I think we probably thought we would be, in that Netflix is overwhelmingly at the top with more than 200 million subscribers. Disney, second place with over 100 million. And then, you know, then it sort of gets, uh, I don't want to say murky, but it's almost like after that, you sort of pick the horse you want to bet on, whether it's Peacock or HBO Max or something like that. But before we get into sort of the the weeds on the streaming landscape, where where do you think we are right now? What stands out to you? Well, I mean, we're on the couch, right? Like we're we're <laughs> we're all on the couch. We're we're on the couch and and we're watching. Like that is. You know, I mean, we are post-pandemic in some parts of the world, not all parts of the world, and hopefully we get on the other side of this really soon. But increasingly, I think we've seen, you know, there was a big pandemic bump, and that has not gone away. Like, I think what we have found, like in other industries, that, hey, we kind of like this streaming thing. This is the way we want it, and this is the way we want to consume entertainment, and that has become a thing. And so, of course, as Hollywood and tech companies are kind of want to do, they sort of get behind it and say, okay, this is what you want. We'll give you more than you want and more than you can handle. And so, like you said, Chris, and there are some stragglers here. And we'll see. It's too early to say which stragglers actually become real competitors and which ones go away. But there are some stragglers, and this industry looks like it's shaping up to favor the top two. And those top two are Netflix and Disney. I think those are the ones that have the clearest advantages right now. 
I'm going to get into the weeds just a little bit, but sure. one of the things that comes up whenever you're talking about these businesses is um, how much money are they making per user, the, yep. the average revenue per user. And when you look at Netflix compared to Disney, it's roughly three times the amount. Yeah. Right now, Disney is making about, let's just call it $4 per user. Netflix in the US and Canada, it's north of $14. How do you think about that? Because one way to look at that is, boy, Disney has a lot of room to bump up that price incrementally on a more frequent basis than Netflix does. The other way to look at it is to take it at face value and say, boy, hats off to Netflix for making so much more money per user. Yep. Let me. I'm not to answer a question with a question, but this is this is a little bit rhetorical here. What do you want to bet that that ARPU would be a lot lower if Netflix was still doing a fairly big DVD by mail business, right? And and the reason I use that that piece of data there is because Netflix has done the work. To invest in the transition to a full, like it is streaming is its business. And it didn't used to be, but it made that transition. It invested heavily to get to that point. And so now it yields the benefits of a high ARPU. So, what Disney, the reason I, I use that is to set the stage for Disney. What Disney is doing and what it has to do is effectively disrupt its broadcast business model that. Is still has a lot of legs. The cable business model still generates a lot of cash, and they have to strategically disrupt that to get to the point where Disney Plus can be a global brand with account control where they are dealing with customers around the globe, and their primary earn is through that Disney Plus subscription. But they can't get there until they use the funds that they get from broadcast and cable to, to get there. So you're you're essentially using cable and broadcast to get scale in in Disney Plus. And in order to get scale, you got to keep the cost really, really low. So it doesn't surprise me, right? Like you're definitely right. You can see the scale up that's going to come, but it's probably not for like, let's just call it three to five years. Comcast owns NBC. They own the Peacock streaming service. They also own Universal Pictures. Starting next year, theatrical releases from Universal are going to make their television debut on Peacock. And some of them are tentpole franchise-type yep. movies like Jurassic World and the, the next Halloween movie, that sort of thing. What do you think of this strategy? Because it, it seems like, and, I, and I'm not knocking the movie studios, I'm not knocking Universal and Comcast and Disney for this, but it almost seems like they don't have enough data yet to realize what is the best strategy when they have a history of making so much money at the box office, but they also have streaming services that they fully control. And it seems like they're still in the process of figuring it all out, of what's the best way to make the most money possible. I think you're right. I think they are testing this. I also think they're cognizant of history here, and the history I'm thinking of specifically is with Disney and Fox. Probably the most famous distribution deal in the history of all movie making 
is when George Lucas decided in order to get Star Wars made and to strike a distribution deal where he could get Star Wars into theaters is to give Paramount Pictures perpetual rights forever. And that is true, forever, to distribute Star Wars Episode Four. Can you imagine what a feather in the cap that is for Paramount Pictures? That they just like, nope. Anytime you are showing Star Wars Episode Four, we get our little piece of it. That is amazing. And so I think these deals, Chris, are essentially designed to say, what can we do to control, basically verticalize the business of entertainment production? Because it really hadn't been. That is a huge lift. Just imagine that. This has been a very horizontal business where you have different pieces that get you all the way finally to production and distribution at the end theater. And there were lots and lots of different parties involved in that. When you verticalize it, that's what these streaming platforms can do. They can allow you to say, okay, there's a piece of this that I control because I have a streaming platform now. And so I can control a fair amount of the distribution here, which means I can dictate terms on a uh, maybe a more favorable basis to me as a studio. So I kind of applaud Universal for doing this. There's also this weird way that distribution happens where you can have a distribution agreement. And this is actually quite common. It could be like, well, we're going to go to Netflix, and we're going to go to Netflix for six months. And then after that, it's wide open for the next year. And then after that year, it goes back to Netflix. And these windows are negotiated, and they have different sets of fees, and they're complicated. But ultimately, they favor the producer. So I think what we're seeing is the center of gravity move back to the producer here. It's still hard to see how this is going to have any kind of impact on something like Peacock, which let's be honest here, this is a minor league streaming service. But really, the point is to control distribution. And if it achieves that for Universal and Comcast, then it might be a win. When I was ticking off uh, how many subscribers different services had, I didn't mention Apple Plus yeah. for the very basic reason that Apple has not shared how many people are right. using Apple Plus. And um, it, I'm assuming that the number is not as high as they would like, because if it was a huge number, I'm pretty sure they'd tell everyone. Now that we are you know, a year or so into Apple Plus, Am I the only one who thinks they need another Ted Lasso? Because that is an unqualified smash hit for them. And that's Absolutely. great. I mean, it's the reason I got Apple Plus. But they, you know, they're, they're kind of like the early stages of Netflix when Netflix got into original program and they had a couple of hits. And it's like, yeah, House of Cards is great. Orange is the New Black is great. But. Just like investors are all about the future, um, so are streaming consumers. So, uh, am I wrong that they need more hits? They absolutely need more hits. And let me tell you, are you? Is anyone more excited other than the Lasso fans? Or what we? I have learned now, Chris. Apparently, we are Ted heads. That's what that's what we're called now. If we're a, a a fan of Ted Lasso, that makes you a Ted head. And you know what? I'm all about it. I'm in. Granted, if if that's uh, the cost of of watching the show and being a fan of the show, that's fine. I'll go with that's, that. I, I'm with it too. But is there anybody more excited 
at Apple for July 23rd than the producers at Apple TV, because that's when season two of Ted Lasso goes live. And you're right. It is an unqualified hit. It has. It's an amazing show. It's got tons of fans. There's tons of buzz about it. It's something that Apple TV has not experienced with any other show that it's had. It's the closest thing to a Netflix-style hit that Apple has been able to muster up to this point. So you do have to wonder what Apple is going to do in terms of funding its future slate and how it gets a a considerable amount of programming into its funnel. Because what Apple's not done that others have, the major difference between, say, like a Netflix and an Apple TV, is Apple tends to make tentpole programming, or what they proclaim as tentpole programming, instead of lots of programming, instead of lots of little bets, they've made some very big bets, and some very big bets that have flopped. So, yeah, I, I wonder if this signals a little bit of a strategy change for Apple TV because you just need to increase the numbers. If you want another Ted Lasso, you've got to go out and fund 30 more morning show like things in order to get another Ted Lasso. You just can't do it without the law of large numbers. So, in that regard, do they need, in the same way that Disney has Kevin Feige overseeing the Marvel Universe, yes. and for so long, uh, before he was co-CEO, Ted Sarandos was the head of content at Netflix, right. does Apple need to go out and get their version of that person? They do, and they need somebody who knows how to build an entertainment portfolio and knows how to go out and find talent, not just buy scripts, because any studio can buy scripts. In fact, there are whole shops that all they do is they just go out and buy scripts, and then they get very cheap talent, usually college students who want to be writers and, and just to read scripts and either say, this one is good, pass it along, this one's terrible, throw it away. And there are just you know people who go through slush piles. That's not the same thing as building a portfolio. You need somebody with executive producer type credentials who ha- makes Apple TV or Apple Studios a place where you want to go make programming. Because the thing that really got Netflix its sea legs and streaming, Chris, I think more than anything else, was the buzz around creators saying, Hey, man, if you want to make programming, go see these guys. They do it differently. And that just changed the game. As soon as that buzz started hitting, Netflix started getting some really interesting talent that was interested in making programming with them. And so uh, it's, it's a war for talent. And I don't think Apple TV has done what it takes to win that yet. Last thing, and then I'll let you go. Uh, sticking with Apple, th- their next event is probably going to come in September. What are the expectations for this event? Because it, it seems like there are events that Apple has where there are great expectations, and yeah. there are ones where they're more modest. And this one seems like the latter, but I could be wrong. No, you're probably right, because uh, it tends to be the fall or earlier in the year when Apple historically would do big events, I'd say like what we used to have as as Macworld now during the summer, 
We have the Worldwide Developer Conference. So I, I wonder if it will be something around hardware and the M1 chip. That would be very interesting. But from the entertainment perspective, just sticking with the Apple TV theme here, it wouldn't surprise me at all if we start to see a bigger, wider slate of of programming and maybe even just a program to say, hey, bring us your best stuff. Like a almost an Apple-like fund. Say, like, we're buying. We're in the market. We want you to come make your stuff here. Because the strategy of just unleashing the next big tentpole thing for Apple has not worked. What you need to do is just get a wider... Uh, a wider array of creators coming through the door. So it wouldn't surprise me to see some kind of Apple entertainment fund and maybe some partnerships with other studios to bring in content that is is pre-existing. I would find that to be very interesting too. Right now, Apple TV is very much in its infancy. It needs more support. Um, I mean, we need more Ted Lasso, but we also need more from Apple TV overall. Tim Byers, great talking to you. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Chris. Up next, Emily Flippin and Jason Moser return with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Jason Moser and Emily Flippin. Time to get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Well, Chris, as populations grow and resource consumption continues to stress our aging global infrastructure, companies like ITRON, ticker I-T-I-R, are helping municipalities, cities, states efficiently manage their resources within energy, water, uh, things like that. Their core focus is to help their customers safely, securely, and reliably operate their critical infrastructure in these areas. Uh, So, the business itself focuses primarily on device solutions and network solutions. Uh, The devices, that's the hardware represents about 32% of uh, of revenue there the network solutions which is essentially that that's that's the software right that's sort of the stickier part of the business that that helps these devices all communicate with one another and 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 uh and and central locations within these cities and municipalities that that represents about 58% of of overall revenue uh and so there are a couple of i think big long-term trends in play here number one just the, the rollout of 5G and the the advent of industrial internet of things i mean this plays right into that movement um, um, and then also, let's not forget. I mean, we we are we're watching a lot of, of back and forth on this infrastructure bill, right? There are going to be uh, a lot of dollars here invested in our, in our in our domestic infrastructure over the over the next several years, uh, regardless, you know, what what the politicians ultimately come up with. So I think that uh, this is a company that stands to benefit from both both long term trends. There, one I'll, one I'll be keeping an eye on. Dan, question about Itron. Absolutely, Chris. Do we know how they came up with their name? Because the word ITRON does not scream to me at all. Municipal Water Management. 
No, I don't know that history, and I agree with you, Dan, because the first time I ever saw this company and the name, it, it immediately made me think of just like an Atari game from, from when I was growing up. But I can look into that for you. Emily, we've got a minute left. What are you looking at this week? I'm looking at Chewy, and actually, Aaron um, from Vermont emailed us and, and mentioned his great experience with Chewy, unfortunately, after he lost his dog. And it reminded me what a great company this is. Their 2020 cohort is maturing nicely. Great customer acquisition. Overall, wonderful company for both investors and consumers. Dan, question about Chewy? Yeah, so I actually love Chewy. You know, I use it to uh, get cat food delivered automatically to my house. I love that feature. Uh, Chewy, I mean, it, it's a large company. It's got a lot of stuff going on, but it seems ripe to be the kind of company that's going to get purchased, Emily. Is that going to happen anytime soon? It is never going to happen. If this company is purchased, my heart will break. They have carved out their own niche. They have so much optionality still left in their platform. So I hope that never happens. What do you want to add to your watch list, Dan? I mean, I'm already using it, Chris, so I'm going with Chewy. Woo! All right, we're out of time. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. With MailChimp, you get more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. With things like data-driven recommendations and powerful automation tools. Get started today at MailChimp.com smartmarketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. With MailChimp, you get more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. With things like data-driven recommendations and powerful automation tools. Get started today at MailChimp.com smartmarketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Crypto channel. I hope you're doing well. I have some very big news to share with you all. We're seeing a lot of bullish news these days, a lot of institutions coming in. And a common question uh, folks may ask is, hey, why isn't the price moving with this bullish news? Well, you have to understand market cycles, what we talk about all the time. There's going to be points of overbought and oversold and correction and consolidation phases. That's just how it is with markets, right? You have to understand market psychology. The, the charts tell the, the uh, human emotions and psyche. And sometimes after you've had a very strong bull run up, you need that correction phase uh, to, to, to kind of cool off a bit before we go further. So we're going to get into all of that, but some of the big items I want to cover with you guys is Bank of America has launched a crypto research team. We have NeoBank, a fintech firm that is jumping into crypto. We also have a hydroelectric plant that is only able to survive because they're mining Bitcoin. This is big because when you think about the thousands of mining plants, or I should say not mining plants, but energy companies, and, and um, whether it be nuclear or hydroelectric or whatever it may be, there's a lot of them and they would certainly want to do the same. Uh, we're also going to talk about an investment firm that has bought a significant amount of crypto. Uh, we also have another senator, another politician who has bought crypto. So we're going to go through all of that. Before we get to it, please go ahead and hit that thumbs up button, leave a comment below, and hit the subscribe button if you're new here. It helps support the channel and it doesn't cost you anything. Guys, this video is brought to you by OKCoin, which has the lowest fees around. Why pay high fees? Use OKCoin to buy your crypto. Link in the description. 
Please also sign up for my free weekly newsletter, All Crypto Insights and Knowledge, no spam. Uh, if you want to learn about the market and the updates, I will be sharing updates through my newsletter. Now, I want to let you guys know about some upcoming interviews that you might be interested in. I will be interviewing Alex Mashinsky next week, and that is definitely confirmed. I'm in the progress of confirming the following interviews. Chris Larson, co-founder of Ripple, Perianne Boring, founder and president of Chamber of Digital Commerce, and Ben Weiss of CoinFlip, which is a crypto ATM company. So you don't want to miss these interviews, so make sure you have the notification bell enabled. Now, uh, here's some interesting data from Will Clemente, who does some on-chain analysis. Uh, he has a, a newsletter, by the way, you can sign up to as well. Well, as the price keeps going down and consolidating and moving sideways, it's we're seeing that the whales, the strong hands, are buying the dip, and the data doesn't lie. So there's a big divergence between price action and the fundamental investor activity right now, and it's growing stronger. So whales are buying. And here's an example. Uh, I'll, sh I'll show you this here. Uh, in an SEC filing today, First Midwest Bank Trust Division, based in Joliet, Illinois, reported holding 29,498 shares of Grayscale Bitcoin Trust as of June 30th. Previously, it reported 7,693 shares at the end of March. They kept buying. See what's happening here, my friends. And I'm sure a lot of this was accumulated as the price corrected down from 64,000 Bitcoin, that is, right? Um, we are seeing a massive accumulation from the whales. And I hope you guys understand what is at play here. Smart money, they're not phased by this. And they're looking at the macro level charts, which I try to point you guys to here is the, uh, the stop the flow model. And I think this market cycle, and we're using Bitcoin as the benchmark here because Bitcoin moves the market. We're going to double peak like we did in 2013. Uh, in 2013, we had a strong run up and then a correction and then another huge run up in that same cycle. So now there could be months between these respective run ups. So you have to be patient. You have to look at the macro level charts. If you're looking, at, if you're a hodler and you're looking at hourly, daily, and even uh, weekly charts, you're going to be disappointed because it's very volatile, right? Now, uh, let's move ahead here. Bank of America has launched a new markets research team dedicated to cryptocurrencies. Gee, I wonder why they're doing that. <laughs> Could it be the paradigm shift that's taking place, the new emerging asset class? And as the World Economic Forum uh, outlined it as the fourth industrial revolution. Many of you remember that document from Davos when uh, all the world leaders, they usually go to the World Economic Forum. So Bank of America, the Wall Street banking giant, has launched a new uh, research team dedicated to covering the cryptocurrency market. According to a report by Bloomberg News, the unit will be led by Alkesh Shah, who joined the bank in 2013, according to a memo seen by Bloomberg. Here's a quote. Cryptocurrencies and digital assets constitute one of the fastest growing emerging technology ecosystems. Candace Browning, head of global research of, uh, excuse me, global research for Bank of America, reportedly wrote in a memo, we are uniquely positioned to provide thought leadership due to our strong industry research analysis, market leading global payments platform and our blockchain expertise. Now, if you've been a subscriber to this channel over the years, we've followed Bank of America closely and they had filed for uh, a 
man, multiple crypto patents to do a variety of things. And some of those patents they won, some they did not, but they were moving in silence doing this. They weren't making huge headlines and we were uh, covering it on this channel. So I think Bank of America is going to make a bigger splash. I think that's the come because we saw JP Morgan, uh, Citibank and uh, BNY Mellon and some of these others have taken a position, but where is the other giant that is Bank of America? And I think um, they've got something up their sleeve, especially what they've been doing over the years. And I think many of us know about the uh, Ripple partnership as well. And I think that was not made, you know, there wasn't a huge PR push because of the SEC lawsuit against Ripple and uh, in, in regards to XRP, but there's a huge partnership there. So here's another bank getting involved. Neobank Moniz, if I'm saying that right, is the latest fintech firm to explore crypto products. Um, London-based Neobank Moniz is exploring offering new crypto products through its mobile money app, according to two people familiar with the matter. These sources said that Moniz had held talks with crypto exchanges over potential partnerships to help launch the new tools. Everybody is expanding. I think I think you see a major land grab here, right? For you want to get as big of a share of the market, the biggest share of the pie here so you can make money. And I think that's what everybody's trying to do. You're seeing mergers, acquisitions, uh, expansions, a lot of funding and raising of cash to do this. And uh, it's it's very bullish, even when and, and this is why you need to hang your hat on these facts, not just the price, because the price doesn't really tell the true story of what's being built. It will eventually those things are going to dovetail, but market cycles have to play out. And these guys are building regardless of what the price is right now. So uh, but exact time frame for such a move is unclear. And a spokesperson for Moniz said the firm has no immediate plans to launch a crypto product, um, aka they're working on it, but we're not going to you know, reveal our plans or tell you an exact timeline because we don't want the competitors to uh, move ahead of us. So they're not going to give away everything. Uh, here's a quote. We've been speaking with almost all payment processors and neobanks. They are all at different stages. So you never know who's serious about adding crypto and who's just doing research said one executive at a crypto firm. Now, I think read between the lines here, when you have the biggest of the biggest, your Bank of America's, your Goldman Sachs, your Morgan Stanley's, and these folks jumping in, game theory will su would suggest these other folks are going to jump in, especially the smaller ones, because they can probably move a bit faster and no one wants to get, get left behind. I use the analogy a lot. Look at what happened to Blockbuster. They did not adapt and innovate right to the internet, went out of business, bankrupt. And I think a lot of these companies recognize that and they're going to, they, whether they say they're bluffing or, you know, smoke and mirrors, no, nah, we're not doing anything, but secretly they're building something. We saw JP Morgan do this. They were building JPM coin while Jamie Dimon was saying Bitcoin's a scam, trash, right? So I think we all know how the game is played here. Now, check this out, guys. Um, Mechanicville, excuse me, Mechanicville Hydroelectric is the oldest renewable energy facility in the world that's still running, but it was nearly dismantled as, a, as it's difficult to maintain profitability. That recently changed and now profitable. Now it's profitable thanks to Bitcoin mining. Guys, 
Uh, there was another report. I remember reporting on this months ago. There's a power plant not far from me up in New York, and they are using their excess energy to mine crypto. This, once again, game theory will suggest others will follow suit. This is going to be huge. And you have these companies that are going to use their excess um, energy to mine crypto, and it's going to help them to be profitable and, and really put them in the, in the black versus the red, right? Um, and this is getting covered by the Times Union here. Other power plants will follow. Nuclear, hydroelectric, whatever it may be, I think we're going to see a lot of them flocking to mining Bitcoin. And we've been seeing Bitcoin mining, uh, Bitcoin mining boom in the United States, especially in Texas. Uh, it's here to stay. While Bitcoin may not be the fastest, the most efficient, the most scalable, uh, its use case as digital goal and a hedge against inflation cannot be ignored. If you don't understand that, I highly recommend you research how gold and other precious metals have served as a hedge historically, and then you will get that use case. That's why you see big companies, corporates, and hedge funds, and all these folks are buying Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin's not the only crypto they're buying. They're investing in altcoins as well, but Bitcoin is usually what they lead with. And uh, I, I know there's a lot of tribalism in the market, and people really uh, just maybe call out Bitcoin's, Bitcoin's flaws, but they're not calling out the pros of why it still exists, right? And what's happening. So uh, you really have to understand monetary policy. And I don't think a lot of people do, or they would understand Bitcoin and even gold's use case. Now, uh, once again, as I mentioned earlier, you're seeing a lot of fundraising. You're seeing a lot of money coming into the market. Welsh crypto insurer CoinCover lands $9.2 million Series A fundraise. So you have People, all kinds of like uh, infrastructure being built around the crypto market as you have in the traditional markets. That's data analytics, research, white glove service, insurance, and insurance is a big part of what's going to help this market to grow. So the startup combines a technology platform with insurance protection underwritten by Lloyd's of London. In event of business or systems failure, customers are covered up to $1 million. I love it. This is so crucial. It's one of the pillars of what's going to help this market to grow. Insurance, assurance, protection, security are going to be so important, especially when you have the hedge funds and the big players coming in and the wealthy individuals. Uh, and, and this is bullish. You, you're seeing right before your eyes the building out of this new asset class, and it's going to be positioned the same way the traditional asset classes, stocks, and, and so on and so forth. Um, now, Jeremy Allaire, I'm a big fan of Jeremy Allaire. I interviewed him, I think it was a couple months ago. Let me see here, four months ago, actually. Um, so I'll put a link to that interview in the description of the video. Um, but obviously, Circle, um, they are the creator of the stablecoin USDC. And they are going to be going public via an SPAC merger. And Jeremy kind of shared a thread here on Twitter about it. I'll read through some of it. But uh, very big, my friends, you're seeing crypto companies going public. Well, obviously, we had Coinbase, which was the largest. And you're going to see Bitcoin miners going public. You're going to see possibly Ripple and many others. It's coming. Same way in the dot-com boom that we saw. Excuse me, that we saw these... Um, companies going public and just growing and the revenues there, it just gives the market more exposure. And I, I, I wish I could double dip. I wish I was an accredited investor to both 
buy the asset. Well, I can buy the assets already, but to invest in these companies as well. As well. So Jeremy says a separate thread on being a public company on and increasing public transparency around USDC. As we partner with major companies and financial institutions, and as people around the world interact with USDC, becoming a public company is a critical step in providing greater transparency as a firm. As part of our transformation from private to public company, that also creates an opportunity for Circle to also provide significantly more transparency about the business we are building around USDC and about the reserves that back USDC. So I'm not going to read through the whole thing here, but um, you guys can certainly check it out. But very happy for Jeremy and and uh, Circle, and it's another step in the growth of this emerging market. And and uh, and and you're going to see more companies go public. Um, here, finally, we have another senator that has bought crypto. Senator Pat Toomey buys into Grayscale's Bitcoin and Ethereum trusts. Uh, this was through his disclosures of um, uh, his records. I think, you know, these politicians, they have to disclose these things. Very bullish, guys. He's a Republican out of uh, Pennsylvania. This is not about Democrat or Republican. I'm just stating the facts here. And it's it's bullish because why we need these people to help push the regulations to get things going. And in fact, there was some news about Elizabeth Warren um, giving the SEC uh, a deadline as to when they need to uh, provide crypto regulation. So Senator Warren warns of cryptocurrency risks, uh, presses SEC oversight Oh, excuse me, presses SEC on oversight authority. Now, I know she's been kind of negative on crypto, but uh, I think we've all been waiting for the SEC to get its act together. And that is one, a Bitcoin ETF, and two, stop the bullshit Ripple lawsuit, um, which I think they're going to try to go after other crypto companies. I still think Congress has to step in, unless Gary Genster does the right thing here, but I don't know if he can go in there and shake up this this kind of mob that exists, uh, with the exception of Hester Peirce, you know they're using that eighty year old Howey test and they're incentivized to get these settlement fees because that that is part of how they operate. So if you're incentivized to get money um, to operate to fund your operations, you're going to try to any way and anyhow to get uh, millions from these different companies, crypto or not, right? So you know we'll see what happens, but. Uh, at least, you know, the discussion's happening. And, and I think, I still do think Congress has to pass a law here to put the SEC in their right place. Uh, but guys, bullish news, especially this Bank of America news. Um, and let's keep an eye on them. I think they got something big prepared. Anyway, guys, what do you think about this news? I would love to hear your thoughts and comments. Leave them in the comment section below. Hit the thumbs up button, share this video. Be sure to subscribe. Don't forget about the interviews I got coming up. So make sure you got the notification bell enabled. Share my channel with your friends and family. Thank you guys. And I'll talk to you all later. With MailChimp, you get a whole lot more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. 
That means you can connect your data to make more informed, smarter decisions. And you get powerful automation tools like our customer journey builder to ensure you never miss an opportunity to turn shoppers into loyal customers. So if you're ready to integrate your marketing and boost sales, get started today at MailChimp.com smartmarketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. With MailChimp, you get more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales with things like data-driven recommendations and powerful automation tools. Get started today at MailChimp.com smartmarketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Lots of people are afraid of economics, but no one's afraid of donuts. So it's a signal to everyone that, hey, this is for all of us. The best donuts are the conceptual donuts, and this is the only one that actually turns out to be any good for us. This is Kate Rayworth. She's an economist who's invented an economic model that could save the world from disastrous climate change. I have to say, about five, ten years ago, if I talked about these ideas, somebody said, oh, that's, that's a bit radical, that's a bit left field. You know, this is, this is edgy stuff. The Pope's behind it. David Attenborough's behind it. It's really valuable because it shows that this makes sense for humans on planet Earth. Hello, I'm Anna Jones, and this is Sky News Climate Cast. This week, we're exploring if donuts, yes, donuts, could be the answer to climate change. Well, this week, my regular wing woman, Katerina, is still in Bangladesh, but I'm very happy to say that joining me instead is our correspondent, Helen Ann Smith, this week. So hello and a very warm welcome to ClimateCast. Thank you. It's great to be here. And uh, before we get started, uh, what's that you've got there in front of you? So, yes, it might seem like a bit of a gimmick, but I couldn't resist. Uh, I have bought with me today a box of donuts, as we're talking about donuts. <laughs> we are talking about donuts, but before we uh, get stuck into those, perhaps we should explain why we're eating donuts on a podcast. Yeah, I mean, we're eating them really because any excuse, of course, but uh, there is a serious point behind our gimmicky box of donuts. Um, so, as we know, as you discuss regularly on your show and on this podcast, solving climate change obviously has to be a multilateral approach. We've got to change lots of different things about the way we live and the choices that we make. And one of the most important things is making changes to how we spend our money. So that's everything from what we choose to buy, what the government chooses to invest in and so on and so forth. So one lady, Kate Rayworth, uh, we heard her at the top of the podcast there. I know you've spoken to her as well at length, Anna. She's come up with a new model, if you like, uh, to try and give us a slightly different way to think about the economy, to think about the money that we're spending. And conveniently, her new model is shaped like a donut. So easy to remember, hopefully reasonably easy to understand. And her theory is that if we start trying to think of the economy a little bit more like a donut, potentially we can start bringing millions of people out of destitution and also solving some of the biggest social problems in our world, most particularly climate change. So how does it work? Explain that model to me a, a bit more. So picture a donut, uh, one of those round ones with a hole in the middle. Actually, those aren't the ones I've got here now. I prefer the big fat ones with jam in the middle. Uh, but, but for the sake of this, uh, let's picture the round ones with the hole in the middle. So poorer countries, countries like Bangladesh, uh, who are struggling to provide decent standards of housing and education 
uh, for their people. They're not using a whole load of natural resources. Imagine that they're in the middle, in that hole in the middle of the donut. And then on the other side of the coin, imagine the, the bigger, richer nations, places like the US, places like the UK. Uh, we have good standards of living predominantly uh, and, and lots of wealth in the country, but we're using tons and tons of fossil fuels uh, to sort of to support the way that we're living. Those countries are sort of existing, if you imagine, outside the donut, so sort of beyond the realms of that outer ring. Uh, Kate's argument is that there is a sweet spot, that we should all be trying to find a way to live within the donut itself. So not using too much fossil fuels outside it, not using too little so that people are poor on the inside it, that that sweet spot. And really, that's what her theory boils down to, uh, donut economics, essentially. Beautifully explained. And it's been hailed as genius, hasn't it, by some extraordinary names. I know Pope Francis has endorsed the idea. David Attenborough has dedicated an entire chapter of his book to the theory. He says it's a solution to climate change. So definitely worth hearing more about. And in fact, as you mentioned, I did speak to Kate herself about how it works and why it's necessary. And we'll hear from her in a moment. But first, let's um, hear from someone who is transforming this into reality in a city and, and putting the theory into practice. Hi, I'm Jennifer Drurian. I'm the community manager of the Amsterdam Donor Coalition, a grassroots movement of about 400 people in Amsterdam that are all trying to get the city into the donut. Students right now, when they when they study business, they start with a donut, and I think that's a huge change. That's a huge mindset mindset change. But then there are other local um, examples, such as there's there's a supermarket that's actually based on true pricing. So when you buy an avocado, you pay for the CO2 emissions. You pay true price for farmers, and that also changes people's minds. In 2020, the city of Amsterdam decided they were going to recover socially and economically from the coronavirus pandemic using the donut concept. I think, yeah, so I think on a very local, small-scale neighbor level, you can see that there are suddenly a lot of um, community gardens. People have started their own initiatives. They have started demonstrating on the street. It started with small changes to residents' everyday lives, but by 2050, the city hopes to be entirely circular. All about reusing, recycling, having that loop instead of throwing away and wasting. So it's, it's prolonging the life of material, basically. Some people are worried, though, that limiting GDP growth in the name of climate change might cause other problems such as poverty. But Jennifer says that high GDP is destroying the planet and not solving poverty. So it's time for something new. Well, we can see that it hasn't worked so far, has it? I mean, there's still a lot of people uh, in poverty. Also in Amsterdam, there's 30,000 people that actually don't have, have access to healthcare. So I think we have enough um, examples that this is not working anymore and hasn't worked. So that's Amsterdam, but they may not be the only city to adopt this new way of thinking. Copenhagen, parts of Brussels, New Zealand, Canada, the US and even our own staycation hotspot Cornwall could take the leap and implement donut economics. But just why is it necessary? And is it easier said than done? Well, let's speak to the mastermind behind the idea, Kate Rayworth. First of all, Kate, I do have to refer to that fabulous picture behind you of a donut-shaped diagram, <laughs> which obviously is what you're all about. But talk me through the picture, first of all. Yeah, so I drew a picture of 
think of it as a compass for humanity thriving in the 21st century. What would a picture of that look like? And silly though it may sound, it came out looking like a donut. So think of a donut, the kind with a hole in the middle and humanity's use of Earth's resources radiating out from the center of that circle. So the hole in the middle, that's a place where people are left falling short on the essentials of life. That's where people do not have the resources they need to have good food, housing, education, healthcare, transport, income and work, community, political participation. So we want to leave nobody in the world falling short in the hole in the middle of the donut. Get everybody out of the hole, into the donut itself. But there's a big but. The other side of this story is that as we collectively use Earth's resources, we start to put so much pressure on this delicately balanced living planet that we can kick it out of balance. We can cause climate breakdown. We can create a hole in the ozone layer and acidify the oceans and break down the web of life. So we mustn't overshoot the outer ring of the donut either. We've got to live inside it. So in the simplest of terms, the aim of the donut is to meet the needs of all people within the means of the living planet. And that may sound obvious, but you know what? That is not what's been at the heart of our economies until now. And if we start there, if we put that as the goal, it changes everything. Generally, though, growth, doesn't that mean more prosperity for people? And there's some poor countries that say we really need growth in order to make people a bit richer. Absolutely. There are many countries in the world, low-income countries, let's think of Bangladesh, Malawi, that absolutely need their economies to grow because that means there's more activity, there's more resources for education and health and food and housing and everybody to get out of the hole in the donut. But let's come to where we are. We're sitting in the UK. We're in one of the richest nations in the world, richer than any country ever has been before us in the history of humanity, like all of Europe and the US and Australia and New Zealand and Japan. And yet our political leaders make speeches saying what we need is more growth. Now, we've come out of a COVID crisis and our economies have been shut down. So, of course, we need to reactivate the economy. But even in normal times, even in successful times, the idea is that the success of the economy depends upon endlessly growing. Now, that's absurd. Think of growth, right? Growth is a wonderful, healthy phase of life. We love to see our kids grow. We love to see our gardens grow but nothing in nature grows forever. Imagine if your children grew two inches a year, not just until they were 18, but until they were 50, they would literally not fit in your home. If plants grew and grew, they would engulf us. Nature grows and then grows up and comes to thrive. And that's what makes it work. But we've designed economies for at least the last 100 years based on the idea that their success is on growth year on year on year on year. And actually that's destroying the planet and leaving many people behind. That is a fabulous image. I now have an image of my giant children with enormous feet (laughs) filling up my house. Um, So we need to find, as you would see it in your donut, this sweet spot so that people have all they need to live a good life, but they don't breach that kind of environmental ceiling. Mm. So would you say that that most rich countries are living above the ceiling? They're breaching that kind of environmental limit and the poorer countries are falling into the middle, into that, uh, you know, below the social foundation, if you like. Is, is that how you see it? That's exactly right. And, and it's we've, we've done the calculations on it. We've used the best of the world's available data. You just put it exactly the way it is. Low-income countries like Bangladesh and Malawi, the vast majority of people are falling short in essentials of their life. They, they literally don't have sufficient clean water and food and nutrition and 
education and healthcare to ensure that their children live healthy, productive, dignified lives. But they're not putting pressure on the planet in terms of running down Earth's systems. Jump to the other end of the scale, jump to the high income countries, the Euro Europe and the America, North America. Of course, there's deprivation of humanity, right? And there's still people. That's a shocking thing. Even in the world's richest countries, you can step out of, into the center of a city and you will find people sleeping in doorways, kids living in, in poverty, in homes where both parents are even working. So there is deprivation in the midst of wealth. But these countries are massively overshooting their pressure on the planet. This is the home of excessive global carbon emissions, of using far too much of Earth's materials. And we need to massively pull back within our pressure on the planet. For me, this says there's no such thing as a developed nation. I mean, I, I literally couldn't show you on a map a single country that I could say is developed or is advanced because there's no country in the world that is living in the donut. All the high income countries that we're used to calling developed countries, advanced nations, no, they're not. They are literally destroying the life support systems of planet Earth. And this is a huge realization and a moment to completely reinvent what we think a successful economy is. And I have to say one of the main places or sites of action and energy has come from cities. I didn't expect it, we didn't look for it, but mayors and deputy mayors and town councillors who are stewards of extraordinarily complex places, a city is like a, a miniature a global economy and they want to transform what's happening in those spaces. And they're doing amazing things, taking these ideas and literally saying, we're going to do the donut here and put it into practice. Um, so when those cities come forward and say, we really want to put this into action, what do they do and what does it look like? What does a city that is practicing donut economics look like? What's changed? So let's go in our minds to Amsterdam, because this is the first city that came to us and said, we know we need to transform and we already have a plan to transform and cut our carbon emissions and to ensure the rights of everybody and to take action on the material use and cut our waste. We can't have 15 strategies, but this donut gives us a framework that brings them all together. So we want to adopt the donut. We want to put the, city, the donut into practice in our city. So Amsterdam decided to use this concept and drawing up their strategy for what's called a circular economy. It's recognition that the way we've been using Earth's materials for the last several hundred years through industrial revolution is we take Earth's materials, we make them into stuff we want, we use it for a while, often only once, and then we throw away. So we're continually extracting and cutting and chopping and withdrawing from forests and mountains and oceans. We use stuff and then we turn it into litter and we dump it in the sea, plastic in the ocean, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. This take, make, use, lose approach is destroying the life support systems of the earth. And we need to transform into a circular economy where we use resources again and again and again, far more carefully, collectively, creatively, and slowly. And Amsterdam said, we're gonna do that. I mean, what if every high income city in the high income world said, we know it's time to embrace that goal. We've got to be a thriving place for our residents within planetary boundaries. So massively reduce our carbon emissions, and that's about transforming transport. Amsterdam is going to have no fossil fuel vehicles in the city by 2030. No fossil fuel. I mean, that's not very long, is it? That's quite. It's close. not long. It's not long. And they're going to be 50% material use um, halved by 2030. What I love about what they're doing, and it's a bit like the donut, right? The donut's made up of these two boundaries, the inside circle and the outside circle. Don't fall short and don't overshoot. You've got to live in between. 
sometimes when people see boundaries, they say, oh, don't like boundaries. That's restricting me. No, boundaries unleash our creativity. And what I'm seeing going on in Amsterdam is a city that's put into place really clear regulation. Fossil fuel vehicles, you will not be driving around this city by 2030. If you want to do business in the city, you're really, really welcome, but you've got to get circular. And that means business and enterprise and construction and vehicles, all companies that want to work in that city have got a really long, loud legal message. It is time to transform. And you know what? It unleashes what they already knew they could do. And I see an energy there that I do not see in many other cities and countries because they have not yet given themselves this clear mandate to transform. And one of the worries people have when they hear about this kind of change, they think that sounds fabulous, but is it going to cost me? You know, am I going to have to to pay more for my environmentally friendly vehicle, my means of heating my house, my means of getting around, doing business? People worry about individual cost. I mean, there is a cost to some of the changes, isn't there? And there's a saving. So if 27 million households in the UK are really poorly insulated, and so we're all spending large amounts of money on heating bills of of heat that's just leaking out of our doors and windows and through the walls, we need to insulate the UK's homes, and that will save us money on our bills. If we have a society and a culture where bicycle lanes are throughout our towns and cities and it's safe for our kids to get to school it means we're not sitting in traffic jams driving them i recently gave up ownership of a car you know it was handy to have a car i've got two kids they like going to sport the weekend i just thought i don't need to own a car I, i'm lucky enough to live in one of the places that's early adopter of having a car sharing scheme so i can rent a car when i need one there's not one the hunk of metal sitting outside my front door anymore. And I rent a car when I need one. I'm saving masses on car ownership and road tax and insurance. So it's saving me money. So, of course, there are some costs to transformation. And there are so many savings when we take away the costs. And let's talk about the costs of the disruption of climate change. The UK is not as hit by many places as floods or fires that are raging through some of the the most high income cities and places in the world. That is deeply, deeply disruptive to lives and a a profound threat to life. So the costs of enduring a, a disruptive climate are literally off the scale. They are nothing in compared to the changes we need to make in our own homes and streets and how we travel and how we eat and how we build and retrofit our homes. It's so much sense to invest now in a safe future rather than unleash literally costs of damage and environmental destruction that we won't be able to change our mind on later and and put back in the bottle because we will have unleashed them so the cost is in action the benefit is acting now and we can do it in ways that really really benefit the whole of this nation and indeed the world you're so passionate it's it's infectious do you have optimism that people will get on board, that we can make the changes necessary in the time available to, to tackle climate change? Well, honestly, I say don't be an optimist if that makes you sit back. Because some people say, oh, it's fine. We don't need to worry. We've got plenty of time and people are ingenious and we've done this before. We haven't done this before. We've not done this before. So don't be an optimist if it makes you sit back and say it's it, it'll all get taken care of because it won't. But don't be a pessimist if that makes you give up. And if that makes you say, this is too hard and it's too late and we are too many and it's too expensive and it's too difficult. 
because if you say that, it makes it true. If we all sit back and say, this is too hard, too right, it won't happen. Don't be an optimist if it makes you relax and don't be a pessimist if it makes you give up. Be in action. One of the most powerful things that enables and motivates people to change is what their peers are doing. We are really influenced by what people who we think are like us are doing. So for example, when, when we gave up owning a car, we know that has a quiet, slow influence on people in the street around us. Oh, that's they interesting. Give up their car. Yeah, they give up the car. I went, well, maybe we could give up having a car. So we really influence those around us. So never think, well, what difference can I make if it's me? It's my changing my diet or changing how I holiday or changing where I bank. If you just talk about it quietly to your friends, it has an influence and we all help to build that critical mass that makes change happen. Really interesting. And does everyone give you donuts all the time? <laughs> well, I always say, you know, you don't actually have to eat the darn things. The best donuts are the conceptual donuts. And this is the only one that actually turns out to be any good for us. So Kate Rayworth there and her ideas are so interesting, aren't they? But there has been some criticism of her theory as well, hasn't there, Helen Ann? Yeah, there has. And, you know, it's a fascinating idea and it is changing the way that people think about this. But the really fundamental criticism that donut economics faces is that it's all well and good to talk about sort of changing the, the way we think about economic growth. But it's difficult to get away from the fact that traditional capitalism in the way that we have it in the Western world and have had it for many decades now does bring people out of poverty. And a lot of these new ideas, according to critics, don't necessarily come up with alternative ways of doing that. And, and this argument we've seen play out in, in climate uh, negotiations, climate summits across the years and across the decades that the poorer countries, the poorer, less developed countries have not had the decades of economic, industrial, capitalist driven growth that some of the richer sort of first world countries have had. And, and you know, their argument, perhaps fairly, is often, oh, that's not very fair for you to tell us how to be running ourselves, that you've benefited from all this growth and we haven't. So uh, there needs to be, uh, according to critics, a much more specific uh, plan, if you like, to help bring people out of poverty, because capitalism does do that. A GDP-based growth does do that. And countries like Bangladesh still need that. Um, a lot of other criticisms about it focus around the sort of the fact that talking about green innovations is great, but a lot of green innovations are still quite marginal uh, and their progress is still quite minimal compared to what we need. Of course, I'm sure people like Kate Rayworth would say to that, well, that's not a reason not to try. Uh, but certainly in terms of where we're at right now, that's a criticism that people kind of level. Well, that's right. And of course, we'll have to wait and see um, if Kate Rayworth's donut-shaped economic model can be successful and can save the planet too, of course. But uh, an absolute pleasure to have her on the podcast. So interesting to talk to her. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Sky News Climate Cast. Thank you to you, Helen Ann. Um, this episode was produced by Emma Ray Woodhouse. And remember, you can get your climate news every weekday on The Daily Climate Show. That's with me, Anna Jones. And if you miss it, you can watch the show and all of our reports on our website too. That's skynews.com slash climate. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, rate and subscribe. See you next time. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.
We'll begin this morning, though, with the heartbreaking news out of Surfside, Florida. Exactly two weeks after the deadly collapse, county officials have decided to formally end the search for survivors and shift now, sadly, to a recovery uh, operation. Paxton Boyd from our NBC affiliate WTVJ joins us now in Surfside. Paxton, good morning. Thank you for being here with us today. So first, just tell us about this decision. What have county officials said about it and any reaction there? Right. Good morning, Yasmin, uh, Savannah. Yeah, this was the inevitable and gut-wrenching update that families simply just did not want to hear. As of midnight last night, search and recovery, uh, search and rescue, I should say, efforts officially switched to that of recovery. And this comes 14 days after the collapse of the Champlain Tower South. Since that time, 54 people have been pulled out of that rubble. More than 80 are still unaccounted for at this time, with Wednesday marking the largest one-day total in the death toll. And it all made for an extremely powerful and emotional evening here in Surfside last night. Those first responders who have been working tirelessly on that pile for two weeks now, coming together, stopping for a moment of prayer and just a block away at a makeshift memorial that has uh, really blossomed over the last couple of weeks. A vigil was held by county, city and state officials, along with community members who are mourning to really pay respects to those who lost their lives. And uh, Mayor Daniela Levine, of course, saying that, uh, you know, first responders have officially just exhausted all possibilities here. Talk, talk to us about the moment of silence last night. It was an incredibly emotional moment in making this transition um, from search and rescue to search and, and recovery, a, a real moment for all the victims of this incredibly tragic collapse. Paxton, do we still have you? Do we have you, Paxton? Seems like we've lost Paxton for now, but obviously, Savannah, just an incredibly tragic moment there for the Surfside uh, community with all the members uh, that have been lost, all the members of that community, the folks um, that have died, the families that have just been reeling over the last couple of weeks waiting for any kind of miraculous good news. Absolutely. Now that time coming to a close. But Offering a bit of closure, I'm closure, sure, for yeah. many of them. We've heard families saying, like, please be honest with us about what's going on here. We heard President Biden say that when he visited. Be yeah. honest with these families. There's certainly an element of closure. But, of course, I mean, just such a heartbreaking. And then, of course, that moment of silence um, last night. So we're going to continue to follow that story, obviously, yeah, as absolutely. it develops over the next yeah. couple of days. And still very much a search and recovery uh, mission. All right, so we're also following some breaking news this morning. Um, Japan has declared a state of emergency in Tokyo just two weeks before the Olympic Games um, are due to begin. Prime Minister Yoshihida Suga made the announcement in the last few hours. He said that stronger countermeasures were needed to combat the rise in coronavirus variants. This state of emergency is going to remain in place uh, throughout the Olympic Games and end on August 22nd. He did not say what the restrictions could actually be. Now, the variants are also a cause of concern in the United States. The highly contagious Delta variant is now the country's dominant strain. It's now responsible for more than half of all new cases nationwide. Just two weeks ago, the variant was only making up 30 percent of new infections. So that's quite a jump. NBC News Now correspondent Maura Barrett is following the latest on the variant this morning. Maura, good morning. So where are we seeing some of the biggest increases in Delta cases? I mean, are these are they these pockets where people aren't vaccinated? Where is this happening? 
Good morning, Savannah. Clearly, this Delta variant is spreading extremely rapidly. That's why we're seeing President Biden push even harder for people to get vaccinated, especially young people, because that's one pocket where we're seeing people getting sick. We're also seeing it really centralized here in the Midwest, in the center of the country. A lot of that is where we're seeing lower rates of uh, vaccination. But specifically in Missouri, it's a major problem. Take a look at this. 73% of COVID cases there are linked to the Delta variant. And so I want you to hear more from Mercy Hospital in Missouri, their infectious disease specialist, uh, yesterday at a press conference about the, the projection of cases there. Take a listen. We expect continued rise in cases over the next week or two, but then uh, a bit of a fall, but maintaining a high number of patients over the rest of the summer and into the fall. And so this is not something that we're going to get over with quickly. And, you know, we're, uh, or she's in this for a long, for the long haul. And our community needs to realize that this is not an epidemic that's just going to go away in the next month. And experts are warning it's not going to stay in Missouri or in the Midwest either. We're seeing it in more than 100 countries globally. And so it's set to become the predominant uh, strain globally as well, Savannah. So, Maura, the big question here, of course, is are you safe if you've had a vaccine? How effective are the vaccines against the Delta variant, especially as the country reopens? People who have been vaccinated are going without masks, indoors places. What does the latest research show us? Right. And so this, the vaccines are effective. That's the good news that we have here as we're seeing this strain uh, populate around the, the world again. And so, again, that's why we're seeing this push from global leaders, President Biden here in the U.S. And scientists specifically are looking at the United Kingdom because they have a higher vaccination rate, but a way higher uh, uh, rate of Delta variant. A hundred percent of their cases are the Delta variant there. And so scientists are worried that the U.S. could replicate what we're seeing in the U.K. But a new study there did show that if you have two cases or sorry, uh, two doses of the Pfizer vaccine, that proves to be 96 percent effective in hospitalization, which is obviously that problem that we're seeing here among the unvaccinated. So if you're looking to get away from a more serious infection, that's where the vaccine comes in hand. Now, you mentioned people traveling again, wearing not wearing masks anymore. Some experts are warning that because we don't know how transmissible the Delta variant could be among the vaccinated, even if you're fully vaccinated, some scientists, experts, even like Dr. Fauci are suggesting that it could be a good reason, uh, even though it's not mandated to start wearing masks again inside when you might not know if the people around you are fully vaccinated. Yeah. And we've also have heard from doctors here on this show. I know Yasmin has on her own show also that they're saying, reminding you, even if you've had the vaccine, pay attention if you do kind of come down with something, yeah. if you have a cold or something like that to, you know, know that you could still spread it, maybe get a test if you can, that type of thing. Um, all right, Maura, now to a grim milestone. The world just passed Four million COVID deaths. What is the World Health Organization now saying about the global fight against the virus? I mean, you hear a number like four million. And even though things are opening up, even though it's starting to feel more normal, you just you can't ignore a number like that. And of course, we can't forget all those lives lost. What are they saying about how we're doing here? It's an absolutely tragic number, Savannah. To put into perspective, the Peace Research Institute actually says that it's about equal to the number of lives lost, people killed in battle in all of the world's worlds, world's wars since 1982. Mm. So that's a very large, incredibly tragic number. The good news is, is that deaths are down since we've gotten that vaccine. But I want you to hear a little bit more from WHO's uh, COVID-19 technical lead about the further outlook.
Uh, so she was saying that the, we, at, from the world perspective, we do have the upper hand here. Transmissibility is down, even as the Delta variant is mutating. Uh, but she's reminding people that we need to use the tools that we have on hand to keep transmission mm. down. They're also emphasizing that this is not a problem that countries can tackle individually anymore as mm. things are opening up, as people are traveling again, that we really need to focus on this worldwide approach. Yeah, absolutely. And Maura Barrett, of course, a pro, uh, paraphrasing the sound we were supposed to have mm. when instead we saw a still picture. Maura, thank you so much for your reporting and for, of course, handling like that so well, as you always do. Thank you. Good to see you. All right. I want to bring in um, Dr. Bob uh, Lehida. He is a professor at Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine and director of the Institute for Autoimmune and Rheumatic Diseases at St. Joseph Health. Um, Dr. Lehida, thanks for joining us on this. Really appreciate it. Want to talk to you about what an infectious disease expert has talked about when it comes to the spread of the Delta variant, especially amongst those that have been uh, vaccinated, right? There is this idea, obviously, the CDC saying essentially, unless you are showing symptoms with someone who has been fully vaccinated, two shots in arm, you don't necessarily need to go get tested. However, this infectious disease expert is saying there is a possibility folks that have been vaccinated throughout this country, which is about 67% of Americans at this point, are actually spreading the Delta variant because they are asymptomatic. How worrisome is this? And this is worrisome, Yasmin, uh, because if if you are asymptomatic, but yet you're vaccinated, the virus can be transmitted to people who are not vaccinated. So we know that this Delta variant, for example, has a 60% greater transmissibility. In other words, you can be infected and not know it, mm. and you can pass it on, and the person you're passing it on to will have a really, really tough time if they're not vaccinated. So what's worse with this whole thing, Dr. Lahita, is the fact that the symptoms are actually different than what we have come to know classically mm. as COVID, right? The classic symptoms for COVID, high fever, spiking of fever, right? Body aches, and of course, that classic um, loss of taste and smell. If you lose your taste and smell, then for sure at at many instances that you've heard anecdotally, people know they have COVID and they go and get tested. This, however, the Delta variant adds some other symptoms. Talk to us about that. Yes, you get congestion. You get what, and you know, we wear the mask in the hospital. We wear the mask in our clinics. So patients come in and they say, oh, I have allergies. And they start sneezing and coughing and all. Well, we're not so sure that's an allergy because younger people, and I mean younger people below the age of 50, will have congestion. They'll have a headache, no loss of taste and smell. They'll have uh, what looks like an allergic response to, mm. say, pollen. And you've really got to be careful and consider everybody infected until proven otherwise. I tell you, I was on the other day um, with Dr. Dara Cass from Columbia University. I had some congestions. I've had pretty bad allergies during this allergy season. I have had yes. the Pfizer vaccine, been doubly vaccinated. She told me to go get tested. I went and got tested. I was um, negative. Savannah, don't worry. <laughs> However, it, you know, it, it's important, as, as you say, to continue to get yes. tested um, when you have, yes. even though you're vaccinated. Dr. Lahita, thanks so much for this really important information. Yeah. Appreciate it, as always. Especially, it's so yeah. confusing. The symptoms keep changing. It's hard to keep up. Tropical storm Elsa turned deadly shortly after making landfall Wednesday. In Jacksonville, the fire and rescue department said a tree fell on two cars killing at least one person Wednesday afternoon. As the storm powers north through Georgia, a possible tornado injured 11 people. One of the victims at Naval Submarine Base Kings Bay is pregnant. Let's get the latest on Elsa's path of destruction and the rest of your weather around the country. 
with who better than our own Bill Karens? It's like yesterday, you and wow. I were hanging out early in the mornings. Well, here we are again, my now friends. Back. How do you like getting up again? Yeah, exactly. Good to see you, despite the fact that we're obviously dealing with the very beginnings of what looks to be a pretty terrible hurricane season ahead. Talk us through what we know so far yes. and what folks can continue to expect, Bill. Yeah, good morning. Great seeing you guys. So we have like three weather stories going on, and all of them are kind of big in their own little way. But we'll start with Elsa. And of course, you know, we were worried the tornadoes were going to be a threat. And we did have that one yesterday with all the injuries. And of course, falling trees is always a concern. So we're not done yet. We still have tropical storm warnings that go all the way from Georgia to Cape Cod. And we also have flash flood watches from the heavy rain from the storm system from Raleigh through New York City, all the way up into areas of Maine. So here's the latest on the storm. It is now moving right through the center of South Carolina, almost right over the top of Columbia. We do have a tornado watch that is issued for the Myrtle Beach and Wilmington areas and a big shield of rain that's heading up for Raleigh for the peak of the early morning rush hour. We're not really too concerned with winds at a maximum gust, maybe 30 to 40 miles per hour. So we raced the storm during the day today through areas of North Carolina, uh, some showers and thunderstorms towards the night towards D.C. Notice by 2 a.m. the storm was already in the southern portions of New Jersey. Heavy rain overnight hours for Philly and New York. So that's good with the timing of that heavy rain. And then as we wake up early tomorrow morning, that heavy rain will be from Hartford. By 2 p.m. it's already in the Gulf of So Portland will be getting some gusty winds and heavy rain, too. So what does all this mean? Peak wind gusts. To get down trees, you have to get wind gusts 40 to 50 miles per hour, typically. That could happen on Cape Cod. It could happen on Long Island. But I think Boston and New York and Philadelphia are going to be okay with that. I think the strongest winds will remain off the shore. Again, the heavy rain potential. It's very humid out there. It'd be easy to get two to three inches of rain quickly. So we will have some flash flooding issues. And speaking of flash flooding, I mean, epic flooding has been taking place from Victoria to Corpus Christi. Rockport, Texas yesterday had a flash flood emergency with water rescues and homes mm. and Corpus Christi right now is under a flash flood warning and we could see an additional six inches of rain wow. in areas like Victoria. I mean, that's crazy stuff. And then I'll find, I, don't, I, mean, I could go all, more, all day with all this weather stuff, guys. <laughs> then we have this epic heat wave that's going to happen this weekend in the West. We'll talk more about that next hour. All right, Bill, we're going to talk to you a little bit later on, as you just mentioned. So to the center of Elsa now moving north into southern South Carolina. Tropical storm warnings have been issued from parts of the mid-Atlantic to New England states as well. WIS-10 anchor and reporter Drew Angst joins us now from Forest Acres, South Carolina. Uh, Drew, good to see you this morning. Thanks for joining us on this. Um, what have you been experiencing so far this morning? Hey, good morning. Yeah, what we've seen is pretty much consistent rainfall throughout the morning. We haven't heard of anything super severe in our area, uh, but definitely out on the roadways, we've seen some ponding, some hydroplaning, that type of thing. And where we are right now, this is probably the worst of the flooding uh, that we've seen. We've got about a foot of water here in this parking lot. And if you take a look right through the water, you can see there's actually a drain right where I'm standing here. And this is what we've been dealing with with that kind of heavy rainfall that we've seen throughout the morning. Luckily, as the visibility has increased here this morning, we've also had a slowing of the rain in our area. Mm. Now, our meteorologists have said that parts of the Midlands here in Columbia are seeing some heavier rain. uh, But right now, thankfully, uh, no major issues in our area. Hey, Drew, just south of you, obviously, in Jacksonville, um, a lot of things happening there. There's been uh, some loss of life uh, from this storm in the Caribbean. Three people have died. Uh, One person lost their life in Florida as well. Uh, sadly. Talk to us about what's taken place just south of you in Jacksonville. 
yeah, hearing about that kind of thing, it just kind of shows you how severe these storms are, how serious you need to take it. And that's why we want to tell people out there, uh, even if, you know, we're not seeing this most severe part of this storm, it can be deadly. It can lead to things like this. And if you're driving through this kind of water, you hit that water real fast and that can cause issues and that can lead to some issues like what they're seeing in Jacksonville. And, and these types of storms, these types of severe weather situations can turn deadly. And that's why we want to be there for our viewers. We want to tell them what's going on. And, and that's why this kind of thing is so important uh, to get that information out there. And our, obviously our hearts and prayers with those areas as well. Guys. All right. Drew Angst for us in South Carolina. Appreciate it, Drew. Uh, good to see you this morning. Please stay safe um, in the coming hours. Hey, NBC News viewers. Thanks for checking out our YouTube channel. Subscribe by clicking on that button down here and click on any of the videos over here to watch the latest interviews, show highlights, and digital exclusives. Thanks for watching. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.